So we can make more biodiversity and more abundance based on how we forge in the landscape. Everything I wish for is that there's a healthy and diverse ecosystem that's being fueled by the actions that foraging and feasting is putting out to the world. It's all about you sort of finding your niche within the ecosystem that you live and learning how to live with it in a way that it thrives as you thrive. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty-gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we are your hosts, Emma and Mary Kingsley, the mother-daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Good morning, Mom. How are you doing today? Oh, good morning. Very well. Thank you. So here we are finishing up the second week of the Slow Living Challenge. And the challenge this week has been to prepare one slow food or real food meal. So what do we mean by that? Do you want to tell them, Mom? Yes. So slow food is real food, which is simple, fresh, seasonal, as close to its original form and source as possible. And ideally, it hasn't been through any kind of factory processing, packaged in cardboard or plastic or preserved or flavored with unpronounceable things or traveled long distances. And slow food to that point is prepared with care and intention and savored with awareness and gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about sourcing, preparation, and intention and the spirit behind it and who you're serving, either yourself or loved ones or friends. So how do you think, Emma, that this approach to eating might feel different to a lot of people? Why is this even a challenge? Well, I think the main challenge is that it takes time to eat this way and to to research your food and to find local sources for things. And a lot of us don't have time or we feel like we don't have time. So I know, especially for even myself, I actually, I live not very slow a lot of the time. And so I find myself sometimes relying on takeout or prepackaged, prepared foods, which there are better choices within these categories. If you're looking for more real food options, but if you are doing a slow living challenge and you really want to experiment with really slowing down and having a real food experience, it's fun to go through the exercise of locating your local food sources in your community, in your area, and finding where you can get as close to the source as possible and planning out a time in your week, just one day in which you you can take the extra time to be in the kitchen. Now, the funny thing is when it comes to real food, when you're really sourcing good local ingredients, I have found 
you actually don't need to do much to them. So it's not like you need to be like cooking all day. All you have to do is like roast, you know, heat things up, put a little olive oil and salt and like so good. So this is so true. Real food, simple food, straight from the source. You know, you want to eat it and it's close to its original form. So you're not taking a lot of time to process it in your kitchen either. So yeah, it's so true. So do you have anything to share yet about this week's activity? Well, I can share that over the weekend, we had a little gathering at our house, a birthday party, and we had a ham party inspired by Alison Roman's ham party. If anyone follows her, she's a food writer and a chef. And she put out this recipe around the holidays for this delicious ham rub. And she also appreciates slow food and real food like we do. So she she recommended a few sources to to get some nice heritage ham, heritage raised pork for good ham. We got the good ham <laughs> from like a real farm and it did come delivered. It, so it was in a package. So all of these things, you know, all, all of these things, it's case by case. But it was a heritage pork. Grew, uh, grew up on a good farm using regenerative practices. You know, ham is already cooked. So all we did was warm it up with a nice rub to make it delicious tasting. And it was so amazing. It was truly the centerpiece of this gathering. And it was, besides the birthday, it was sort of the theme of the party so that it was just a celebration of this beautiful food and it was delicious and it was really fun. Oh, wow. That sounds so good. How about you? Did you did you make anything real or slow this week? Yeah, well, I made a quiche Lorraine and it was really wonderful. And I call it a slow food meal because even though it's a fairly simple recipe, it takes two or three different stages, and none of those steps take very long. First, I made the crust and put it in the refrigerator until like the next day. Then I cooked the bacon to go in it, and then I put the quiche together and then baked the whole thing. And I was so pleased with it. The smell was so delightful. It smelled like a country French kitchen. It was just wonderful, and it was a cold, wintry day. It was a whole experience. It was a process, but not a time-consuming process. It was just something that had to be thought about. Again, intention, so delicious (laughs) and so warming and nourishing. And, you know, when you nourish your body, you nourish your soul as well. So... Even though this might sound like, oh, I don't have time for that, that, that's where the challenge comes in. We're just asking you to reframe those thoughts a little bit and just go for it in any small way that works for you. And what's kind of exciting is if you truly don't have time for it, the challenge might be, is there something besides feeding yourself and nourishing yourself that is taking your time that you might be able to let go of that you hadn't considered letting go of? I don't know if that's an extra thing you're trying to squeeze into the evenings or maybe it's some external obligation you're trying to get to, but you haven't had a chance to slow down and consider if you even have to do it or if you could let it go. So that's that could be an interesting piece of this challenge as well is about making the time, which we'll also get to. That's another theme of the Slow Living Challenge. And if you have not yet joined us, it's not too late to join. All you have to do is sign up at the link in our show notes to get the welcome email, and then you'll get caught up on everything we're talking about. And follow us at We Are Lady Farmer on Instagram. Okay. So our episode today is perfect with this week's theme for the Slow Living Challenge, because today's guest has been a huge influence on me in the realm of slow food. And I'll go on to say how much she's taught me about wild food and foraging and learning to love and appreciate all of the food that's around us in such abundance 
there's so many things out there that are incredibly healthy and nutritious and healing to ourselves and the earth, and they're free. Her name is Dina Falcone, and she's the author of Foraging and Feasting, a field guide and wild food cookbook. It's not only beautiful, but chock full of information and beautiful illustrations on 50 plants. And in addition, it offers a seemingly endless number of recipes for creating incredible food from wildcrafted ingredients. I just love the book. I treasure it. It's it's worn out from use and my browsing through it and cooking with it. And I just love it. Dita is a clinical herbalist and has been teaching about herbs, wild foods, and medicine, cooking, foraging, and food activism for over 20 years. She also has a very active YouTube channel, so you should check her out. And so we welcome you to our conversation today with Dina Falcone about all things wild foods. Dina, this is so exciting for us because I used to work at Anthropology and I, like a long time ago, right out of college, and I got your book there. I'm psyched. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh my gosh. And oh I my just gosh. got it. I was like, oh, pretty cover. <laughs> and then yeah. and then my mom stole it. I never gave it to her, <laughs> but she thinks it's hers. <laughs> oh, it's and, not mine? It's not mine? No. <laughs> And it has truly been such a companion to us, mostly my mom, but me too. (laughs) I spend a lot of time at my mom's house. So yeah, we're very excited to talk to you. We are fangirls. Oh, (laughs) I am so fangirling over here. I just want to say your book is a gem. I have used it so much. It's like my herb Bible. And I feel like I've barely scratched the surface. Really. It's in-depth and comprehensive. It's literally got a lifetime's worth of ideas and recipes for things to do with these foods. And oh, it's just so amazing. Thank you, by the way. I really love hearing that it's being appreciated for what it is. Like, it's just, it makes me feel really happy. And that is awesome. Thank you, Mary, for being so appreciative. (laughs) So let's get started and we can incorporate all all these things. So my name is Dina Falcone, and this journey of foraging, of nature connection, of healing with food, I say began really probably, at yes, it was at the age of 11, where I was raised in New York City's East Village, and my quest for healing with food began then. So it's a crazy time to think that a kid would choose that. (laughs) But I was in a crazy landscape that sort of geared me toward that. My early mentor, informal, was a man named Mickey Carter, and he lived in the West Village, and he had cured himself of a terminal illness. And he really became unknowingly my mentor and this idea that food is medicine. And from that food is medicine theme, I moved toward herbs, and all kinds of alternative healing, but drinking herbal medicine, drinking herbal teas, and realizing that they grew freely, they grew wild, even in New York City. So you could find these herbs that you could go purchase. And we had many herb stores in the village at that time. This is in the late 60s through the 70s. And you could walk from my apartment there. Many herb shops were there. And so there was just something 
about connecting the dots of, wow, the earth provides directly and you don't need to be purchasing. It just bypassed modern reality in this way that spoke to me. But also that nutrient, that that theme for healing with food and the search for um, natural medicine, it's an obvious partner to go into the herbalism. And then the foraging and the foraging part of it, which is really we getting into direct connection to earth. So that's really for me, even not knowing it as a kid, not knowing it as a teen or an adult, that that direct nature connection might be more significant than almost what we're eating, perhaps like that reassuring, beautiful, empowering relationship makes mental health, all kinds of things happen. Good things happen. Yeah. So uh, so you were a child and you're wandering around the East Village sort of discovering these things and you had a mentor. At what point did you like study herbalism or did you or when did you get into really sharing it with the world, so to speak? So let's see. The food is medicine theme and that East Village, Greenwich Village experience. I wasn't foraging that much, but I was definitely mm-hmm. connecting to all these natural, basically how to heal through nature, nature, through, you know, but then... Let's see, I'm trying to give it a timeline. So then in my early 20s, I did take a, I did an apprenticeship with an herbalist hands-on. A friend and I were her first herbal students. And then I continued to study with her. And then I began to make the medicines for her company. So this was in the late 80s. So that became my first sort of formal herbal education where I took on this commitment to work with this herbalist, Pam Montgomery, who's a wonderful woman and still an herbalist in the world. And then from there, my clinical training was with William Lasassier. So William Lasassier was practicing out of New York City, and this is in the early 90s. And I had a set up a private tutorial with William for over two years and basically learning how to become an herbal clinician, how to take cases how to formulate, how to create someone's herbal tea formulas or tincture formulas. Don't forget, I had already been making tinctures for Pam's company years earlier, but I continued to do that. And then also I was making herbal body care. And early on, I began to teach. And I'm trying to remember if that was in the late 80s or early 90s that I actually began to teach folks how to forage, how to meet plants, and then how to make products, how to make herbal body care. I was asked by a publisher called Series Press. They're no longer alive. They're not active. The founder, one of them passed away. Anyway, he asked me to write a book called Earthly Bodies and Heavenly Hair, Natural and Healthy Personal Care for Everybody. I myself resisted it. This was in the mid-90s. And I said, nah, I don't really want to write. I'm not a writer. But he was super into this idea of me creating this book. So I got the support of a friend who was a great writer and I created this book and that came into the world. So I had been teaching and then I shared more through the pressure of this publisher in a way through, through writing. And then what else happened? So my formal education, I guess I'd take you there and then beginning to teach in the late eighties, early nineties. And then it just went on from there. And by the way, the education never stops just so that's really clear. Yep. And I have, like, for example, when studying with Pam, my learning through her was a wonderful, beautiful thing, but I was really doing a lot of self-study and as well with William, so that it's really a lot about doing my own 
research or my own passion that's just driving this whole thing. And then also in those early years, there was lots of amazing conferences. So I would be also learning from herbalists from all over the world, from all over the country, and they really fed, yeah, expanded my knowledge base. So I was, I feel very lucky. Many of the prominent herbalists of today, I could say I studied with them too. I was also teaching alongside some of them. So now when we, when we participate in your community and offerings online, we see you walking around. You're in New York, the Hudson River Valley. Is that where you are? Yeah, Mid-Hudson Valley. Mid-Hudson Valley. And you're foraging. And is that your property or, or around you? Or what is your setting now that allows you to do these virtual teachings that are so wonderful? Thank you. Those virtual teachings really also came about because my son, Sam Falcone, he initiated mm. this whole online filming. Ah. He's the filmmaker. I have no filming. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I was an avant-garde sort of filmmaker in college, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm not involved with the filmmaking, but I am the content director, obviously. But so Sam approached me to do these online things. He's the filmmaker. I actually don't even have an iPhone which oh my. is like choice. So there's a lot of confusion, I know, <laughs> around who I am, what I'm doing, but whatever. So being online with Sam filming, you're seeing his amazing, I think he's an amazing filmmaker. But so what you're seeing is us. So when COVID hit, so this is in 2019, he and I began this journey together. But then when lockdown happened in the 2020, early 2020, we made a commitment to create a new video every week for the community, for the public. So there could be a nature connection experience, even if it was indoors. I'm conflicted with that, but that's the reality. So he and I produced over a hundred videos and what is our weekly video series on that YouTube uh -huh. channel. When you purchase courses though, those are content that's a lot more in depth that come with a lot of PDF co written course material. But so what you're seeing, I'm not sure, Mary, what you're referring to, but generally speaking, those 100 plus videos that live there for the public and for the courses that are purchased, much of that is happening on the six and a half acres. This is a homestead here, but it's not limited to that because a lot of the foraging, which is exciting is to, for example, in one of the courses or even, yeah, we go up to the cranberry bog, a teeny mini cranberry bog in the gunks here. That's a mountain range that we live near, or we're in the swamp. That's not part of our property. So we're exploring the landscape and that's what the di diverse landscape is also what brings diversity. So when you see those films, you're not only seeing the homestead, <laughs> it's you're seeing more than that. Yeah. All to say that your online presence and content is wide and deep, and that is matched by the content of your book, too. It's all very rich in content and knowledge and ideas and everything. And that you are producing all of that, so just so we can contextualize your in Hudson Valley and in, around in and around your home teaching yeah. and and without a cell phone. Amazing. <laughs> I love that. Not an iPhone. Do you have a cell phone at all? I don't have a cell phone either. <laughs> oh my gosh. Goals. Yeah. So I love that, that you're, you're not out in your garden every morning going, oh gosh, I better make a reel. <laughs> you're outside of that. What are talking about on Instagram? It's confusing because I don't really know reels. And yeah. 
I'm not. So anyway, yeah, I maybe I might benefit from somebody who's in this realm because my son is a filmmaker. He's not really a social media person as well as he knows more than me. He does have an iPhone, but he, so I could benefit from somebody who is savvy in that realm because I don't know anything about any of it. And it's confusing to be in it. And at the same time, I feel privileged and honored to be able to share on the platform. There's quite a lot of people following that Instagram account and it's a beautiful thing, but it's, but it, maybe I'm not being as effective because I don't know anything about doing what you're saying. How do you do it if you don't have an iPhone? A friend of mine who had an iPhone said, why don't you let me do some posting? Because I would create content like on Facebook and she would then share it on Instagram on our foraging and feasting Instagram. And that just blew up without even me really seeing it because I wasn't aware. But now I'm a little bit like, huh, this is really strong. And maybe I'm really not using it to its potential because I don't know how to do any of this stuff. And yet I still am motivated to share and it's still, there's still a lot of like receptivity or whatever. It's just, I'm not, I'm just owning up to the fact that I'm a Dumbo in this dumbbell. I don't know. I'm just like, ay, ay, ay. <laughs> it's a, it no. is a lot. I spend a lot of time thinking about this. I think it is as scary and time sucking and destructive as it can be. And I'm talking about all of social media. I think like everything has a balance. It can be just as positive and explosive and impactful. And I think it's really tricky to figure out to be like humans with human Mm -hmm. brains navigating how do we use this powerful tool and how do we make it so it's not detrimental to us and how do we harness the potential for good? And it's a big question. So it's really interesting to talk to someone who is just where you are with it. So how is that an intentional... Tell us about not having a cell phone and not mm-hmm. having an iPhone. Has, I mean, has that been hard to stick to? So it's definitely intentional and it's confusing because I'm cheating. It was a very deliberate choice and still is to not have a cell phone or an iPhone. As much as right now we're using the computer to record this, which is also funny because I try to do the least amount of screen time as possible. So I'm not standing in front of the computer, even though my business, because we're the publishers for our book. So there's much that I'm doing in front of the screen. It's not to deny that I am. But um, the iPhone thing means to me, like you're really sucked in and connected to a place that I don't, that I don't want to be, that I don't favor. And yet, like I was saying, I cheat because everyone around me has them. And so they are amazing tools. And I don't want anyone to think I don't know that. They're incredible. They have, you can photograph, you can GPS, you can search. You can, it's a crazy genius in your hand. And it is super real and amazing. Still, I think it's a trap. And it's probably quite negative on another. It is, I feel negative on another level. I don't want to downplay though it's gifts, but so why I cheat is because, yeah, I could be, let's say hiking in in the mountains with friends and one of them has a phone and let's say somebody like my son or Tim, my husband, partner, life partner, they want to contact me. They can text that person and that person can tell me, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm still reachable. So it's not fair to say that I'm not really part of it because 
I can be accessed through whoever's with me. (laughs) And I can say to that person, or they can say to me, let's look up a great restaurant wherever we are. And it's okay, I'll use that technology. And it's true, but I've probably sent maybe five texts ever in my life, or it's just not my reality because I don't have that tool, but I email and then I use mm-hmm. the phone. But yeah, I think mm-hmm. it may change and an iPhone may become part of my life and it may be, but I don't really, I don't want it. I don't want it. Yeah. I don't want that ongoing distraction, disruption. It's a frustration and I don't like, like even you're socially with people and then everyone's pulling their phones out and I'm just like, are you kidding? To yeah. me, to me, it's, it can feel very depressing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I'm fascinated too by, I'm too, I'm such so sensitive and a people pleaser. I feel that it would win me over eventually. Do you ever feel like that or has it just been a line in the sand that you've just been able to, you people just accept it and. Yeah. No one's giving me a hard time. They know who I am. <laughs> Yeah. It's just part yeah. of, it's like the same choice not to have Wi-Fi in the house. So I'm in the workshop right now. So we have it. So it's like the same, it's trying to balance this tech, this t- technological era with a lifestyle that is really more who I am. So it's like, how do we balance that? So people wouldn't pressure me. Although, like I said, it's easy because if I'm with someone, I can be reached. If I'm alone, then yeah, maybe. Tim can't contact me to pick up some sort of grocery item or the plan has to be made. If I'm leaving alone, people can't just Mm -hmm. change things up all the time. It's it's different for people. They're always thinking we can just check in. And I'm like, no, we can't tell me a time and a place and I'll see you there. And I also, I appreciate that even though that can be frustrating for people, but I work from home and I'm very home-based. This homestead is the center of my universe, which is also different for people. So I have a Landline. I have a phone. People can call. That is when it yeah. works. <laughs> no, but we still have old landline. And then the email. I'm good with checking it. So I think you're maybe Emma. I'm not sure how old you are, but with your peer group, it could be quite frustrating that people can't like get to you in that instant way that that you all are used to. To me, that would mm-hmm. be overwhelming to just have to be accountable like that. But then you wouldn't have any space to have your own thoughts or be in the world. You're constantly mm-hmm. being pried and poked. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm really interested in that space of at what point do you have to play along, mm-hmm. play the game? And I do think that there's a difference with the age. So I wonder like how much choice it feels like there's not a choice but there obviously is one. I guess that's what I'm grappling with right now. There's obviously a choice. We have autonomy over how we communicate and what items we buy and how we spend our time. But sometimes it feels to fit in. There is no choice. And that's really scary. We just had an interview with Claire Dunn. I don't know if you're familiar with her work. Claire Dunn is co-founder of Nature's Apprentice in Australia. And she went off on a nature immersion for one year in the forest and no screens, zero screens. And that interview has really affected me. It's made me think so much about that. And you hear people doing stuff like this and you go, I want to do that. And then (laughs) then you think, but how would I do that? I would really have to unravel my life, which is however you look at it in many ways, a good thing. And in her way of looking at it and Claire Dunn's way of looking at it, she wasn't escaping from life. She was in pursuit of real life away from screens. And now that at my age, I had to learn it, obviously wasn't a young person when iPhones came along. And now it's so integrated. It's like the frog in boiling water. And I know I think a lot about how can I 
unwind this, be be more free of this. So Dina, it sounds like you've avoided being totally sucked in from the get go. So I I gotta hand it to you for approaching yeah. it that way from the beginning, inspired. from the very beginning. So I think about that a lot and how can I disengage and maybe one one day a week or I don't know. So I want to segue into herbs <laughs> and foraging, actually. So Dina, you're a clinical herbalist with all this experience and education, and you have moved more of your emphasis, it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, in more of a foraging food activism direction. Is that fair to say? It's all connected. The clinical herbalist in me is the food activist and the forager. It's all connected. So in working with clients, a big part of it is related to, ha- and food activism, just to clarify what that means for me. Yes, it's basically, I want you to Yeah, where food is what, it should be nourishing and it should be accessible and it should, be, it is our medicine. It is what makes us, a big part of what makes us well. And so activism around that, around making food what it should be, it's super, super simple. But so working with clients, that's a big theme is like how to help them learn about how to eat well, how to make healthy food choices and then how to have access to those food choices. And that's more of a political thing as well. So having been on the Slow Food Steering Committee for many years and involved with the Weston A. Price Foundation and doing monthly potlucks that highlight nutrient-dense eating and conversations around that, and also being a local resource so that if someone wants to learn where they can find nutrient-dense food in our area, I have that resource list. Maybe other folks do too, but I try to keep one that I can email around. So it's basically also the Family Farm Festival was an event that a friend and I put on for a handful of years that had everything to do with this theme of reconnecting people to the idea that food is the core of our wellness and the quality of the food is a big part of that. And then it also makes us ecological stewards. So like the food we eat is all about the quality of the ecosystem it arrives from, where it comes from. So the food activism piece, it's so simple. It's just all those things like, how can you eat? How can you, and also food activism includes kitchen arts. Mm -hmm. So that's in the Forging and Feasting book, Big Time is like empowering people to use the kitchen to create healthy food, simple old school stuff. So food activism is making food what it should be, healing, nourishing, delicious, healthy, and making sure everyone has access to it. What about people that you know really are city dwellers and they want to experience foraging and wild foods, but their access really is limited? And so much of food activism is food access. So how do you, we address that? Yeah. So I was a city kid. and I have to say that I didn't do that much foraging in the city, but it's still a beautiful experience to be able to ID plant throughout the New York City scene, right? So you're seeing out of the cracks of the sidewalk, your old friend, dandelion, the lamb's quarter, the chickweed or the violet, Mm -hmm. or just like ubiquitous, useful friends. Plant friends are everywhere, including streets of New York City. To eat from there is not appealing. So the question for New Yorkers is where it's clean enough to eat from. And we don't know. We'd have to go scanning and figuring that one out where can you actually eat that's healthy? So this brings in the question of ecosystem stewardship and land care. (laughs) And so how can we eat from our land? And that as a forager, that's a big theme for me. That's an underlying theme is in order to eat from the ecosystem, 
we have the responsibility of caretaking that ecosystem or else we actually can't, right? Because it could make us sick. So there is this very clear interdependence. We are nature and how we care for nature is how we care for ourselves. So the city dweller is in a conundrum <laughs> because, yeah. you know, the city. But I always say that as a forager, don't be in a rush. It's about slow learning with plants. So it's plant literacy. So as a forager, the biggest part is to know your plants. And you can do that in the city really well. You just don't eat them yet. So you could study plants for years and become an amazing forager in New York City without having to consume a lot of what you are learning about. So it's forging isn't only what you put in your mouth and eat, although I do love that part of it. <laughs> but it's a big part of foraging is being a plant literate person, which also brings in the point of so the ability to know a plant through its life cycle. So that's a patience thing. That's a watch it slow, track the plant, connect to the plant. It's not eat the plant. So city foragers, though, can still eat plants, but it depends on where they're growing and that kind of thing. So therefore, and I, I always get asked this question, what about city folk? Still, you yeah. can benefit from connecting to the pine trees and using the pine needles for brewing into tea or steams. There are, for example, just thinking about it practically, things that are up off the ground and higher up into the air are going to have less toxicity, assuming mm -hmm. there's not a lot of pollutants in the air falling on that tree. But you're not going to want to be digging roots in New York City as much because that's where in the, if the soil is contaminated, it'll concentrate in those roots. But fruits and aerial things are a little bit better. Leaves can be in between. So that's more practical discussion. But I would also connect with some New York City foragers when they're foraging and see where they go and what's going on. So there are probably really fine enough areas. Also, I'll add that foraging can be something you do to create crafts so that you can forage not for food, but for basket making material or again, mm -hmm. top applications of things. So you're not consuming them always. So foraging is beyond just the eating part. That's such a good point. And along those lines, what you're doing when you're foraging, as you say, is getting to know a plant or the plants, getting to know your environment. And that is something that just grows and grows within you. It just really opens up something that just continues to expand in your own surroundings and then beyond your surroundings. And from the very basic learning, this is foraging 101, that you don't have to poison the dandelions because they're, they're a gift to us from nature. They're so nutritious. They're so abundant. They're so available. And so instead of trying to get rid of them, you might not want to eat it. You might live in a place where you don't feel good about eating it or the animals around or whatever, but just learn about the dandelion. It is, it is just magnificent representation of the gifts of the earth. And it just goes from there. There's just an infinite number of things like that just expand your heart and your mind and your relationship to the earth in a way that's just so transformative. And to your point, it doesn't matter if you ever eat it or not, actually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, though, I do, I don't want to act, I don't want to speak yeah. from that point because I do feel like eating the dandelion yeah. is part of completing the full circle of the whole thing with the dandelion. It's so nutrient dense. It's so, yes. that it's such a resource for us that to not to be able to eat it 
can feel frustrating. But I just speak about that in terms of the New York City folk or the city dweller, urban dwellers. Correct. Yeah. Yes. And also, I think in some suburban settings, and I know this from experience, there's you're surrounded by so many lawn chemicals and so forth that you might not want to eat the dandelion that's growing in your suburban lawn. I don't know. People have to determine that for themselves. But to just open your mind to the possibilities in the dandelion or in the purslane or the plantain or all those wonderful things that almost anyone in any location can step outside of their environment, see these things. It's just very expansive. And your work and your book just contribute so much to this, I think, really paradigm shifting thing. And there are a lot of people in this realm doing it. But I know that I've come a long way in my lifetime from I never was one to spray a lawn, but thinking that dandelions were didn't belong there to just absolutely treasuring them and other things too. And now we have a little homestead here. We have a few acres, seven acres. And through the years, I've just learned to just create a relationship with these things and watching them. And I eat some of them. I'll eat more than others or use in recipes, but feels more about like creating a relationship with your surroundings. That's feel so magical. I wanted to ask you about invasives. So many things that are considered invasive. And if you have, get rid of the invasives because they're damaging to the environment. It seems to be a polarizing thing. So just what do you have to say about invasives? They're all obviously in our environment, wherever we are. So I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit. Sure. So in the Foraging and Feasting book, which is, it elevates these invasives. And some people could be pretty pissed off at that. Garlic mustard we feature in there. And trying to think of really so many of them are considered invasives or they're ubiquitous worldwide weeds. It's partly why I chose them to feature them because everyone will have access to them almost everywhere. And our foraging for them makes a better ecological situation. So I'm not highlighting a plant that's going to become prob, prob, that in our foraging for that particular thing will destroy it. Instead, by our eating something like garlic mustard, understanding what it looks like, how it grows, knowing when to harvest it to prevent it from going to seed, eating the flowers. So the idea is to celebrate the abundance of the invasives, understanding the invasives' behavior, controlling the invasives, eating them when it's appropriate. They're our gift and they are what can feed many people. So these, quote, invasives are nutrient dense. Like you were saying, Mary, they're super helpful on so many levels. Why would we just think of them negatively? It's understood, though, that if you want to create a native golden seal patch, you may need to control the garlic mustard from that area. But if the garlic mustard is growing in another area that nothing that there's nothing there, you can benefit from it, assuming also that you know how to control it because it can pop off from that area and go crazy. So again, like for me in the six and a half acres, I do a co-creative dance with the ecosystem here where I'm working with natives and working with invasives and everything in between. There's a big biodiversity of maybe 300 plus species of plants. And I have garlic mustard, might faint and be like, oh my God, you can't have that plant here. But I have it here because I want it because it's so useful. You can use the root as horseradish. You can eat the leaves. It's here as one of the last greens in in the fall and one of the earliest in the spring. 
and it's loaded with nutrient content that we need at the time. There isn't a side of something related to garlic mustard, maybe we'll come back to, but just to continue this thought. So garlic mustard is a gift for us. Yes, you want to control it, but you also want to know how it can benefit you and that and the ecosystem you're in. So it's that there isn't a black and white answer. It's always what's going on. Let's look at the context and the nuances and understand how that plant can be of benefit or do we need to control it? Or So it's just, again, it's changing the mindset that, that we as the keystone species that we are, we need to take that power to understand how we can make for while creating food and or medicine and things that we need for us, we also create a greater abundance in the ecosystem. So that's the gesture throughout. And that's the forging and feasting books theme is look at who's abundant and invasive and aggressive and see the gifts of that gill over the ground, that glachoma heteraceae, which is everywhere. And it's a punk pain in the butt, but it's got lots of gifts. And right now it can be turned into a bitter. So you can be making a digestive tonic that then you could give away as a gift, just it goes on and on. So I guess what I'm saying is invasive, yes, but, or invasive and what? It's like, it doesn't mean, oh, invasive bad at all. It means, okay, there's a conversation. How do we deal with this invasive? I'll add one other thought though, that something like mugwort which is, <laughs> I mentioned this oh. in speaking with folks, it's too aggressive and it's not allowed on the land here. I let it live in the old garden and it beat everyone up. It was much too dominant after a few years. So there are plants and that's, again, that's my point is though we are the stewards of what we're doing and we need to observe the ecosystem and understand what our needs are and what the needs of the environment are, the plant kingdom's needs. If only, if you only want mugwort, then let it be, <laughs> but don't let mugwort onto your property. That doesn't mean though that I don't love mugwort because mugwort has so many gifts. And in fact, Sam and I may do an episode on it soon. It's one of the most abundant invasive plants in the New York City area and people could be utilizing it and they don't have to be eating it. They can be using it in different ways. But there's my comment on invasive. Oh, that's <laughs> fascinating. Tell us a little bit about mugwort. Quickly, mugwort is a warming herb. It's used a lot for moving blood. So it's put into female reproductive health combinations, including also amenagogic ones. That means it moves blood and makes the menses come. So there's it's a very female reproductive focus. It's used in menopause. It's used for cysts, ovarian cysts, but also it's got that whole cleansing psychic emotional spiritual component where people will make smudge sticks with them yeah so the sort of native american use of smoke to clear energetics it's used for dreaming dream pillows for it's an artemisia so artemisia annua yeah. it's a bitter and a bit of a cleanser and it's also related to the wormwood artemisia that super nasty one absinthium not nasty in, as a plant but as flavor super bitter Artemisia absinthium. It's also related to tarragon. And th so it gives you a oh. sense of its digestive. And mugwort sit in the middle of those. It's a nice, but still somewhat bitter digestive. So you could make vinegars that are flavored with it. Um, so New York City could be making lots of smudge sticks and dream pillows and sometimes vinegars. vinegars. And then it's used in moxibustion and in, in acupuncture. It's a different species of mugwort, though. It's a Western mugwort, I believe. I can't remember its scientific name, but it has so many uses that it is such a worthy plant 
folks should learn it and use it and heavily control it. Yeah. Can we talk just a little bit about the process and journey of bringing your book, Forging and Feasting, to life? I want to hear about the illustrations and all that because it's such a work of art, the whole thing. It's such a feast for the eyes as well as the body. And having been in the forging and herbal realm for a good 30 plus years, this book didn't exist. Like I wish it was there for when I was learning. How do you really see a plant? How do you confidently through book usage, identify something properly. And that was missing in the literature, as well as creating a recipe template. So the master recipes are designed so that you can plug in different plants, depending on the season or where you are in the world, so that it's a very empowering plant literacy book and also kitchen literacy book. So you're empowered in the kitchen not to just only find this specific herb or foraged ingredient, or you can't make the recipe. It's designed so that whatever you have these hundred master recipes that are templates that you can plug in whatever's flowing through the growing season, as long as you follow the structure. So the, so that's, it's also part of the earthly bodies books format is master recipes. So the visual part though, which was something that I was super excited about. Wendy Hollander is an illustrator. She moved to my neighborhood. We were introduced and I asked her, did she want to do this project with me? And she just immediately agreed. And I was just so happy. In in the process of creating the book, she drew a plan and we both looked at it. And I realized that it was missing all of the ID clues that were necessary or many of them. So the book's story, the visual story, was about how a plant moves through the landscape and how the forager can confirm that they have that right plant. So it wasn't just beautiful botanical illustration, which Wendy is amazing at. It was also heavily directed art. So that's where all of a sudden I realized I couldn't just hand over the art project to the artist. I was heavily involved. I was the art director and then the art and the designer but I could benefit and was so grateful for using Wendy in quotations as my tool to be able to create these images. And But so I didn't realize <laughs> in taking on the project that I was taking on the art part too, even though she was illustrating it. And I take no credit for the illustrations, but I was heavily art directing and designing. And then when we created the book itself, I, dire- I designed all the pages. Of course, Wendy is always there supporting, but I wasn't able to hand off that part of the project. In fact, she said, I'm not drawing anything until you give me a spec sheet, which had every detail that she needed to show. And then I'd have to show her the plant at exactly that time. Some of them were three years of tracking that then I would have to show her the plant to to do it. So it was this huge other layer of commitment, which was I think Wendy felt a little bit like, oh my God, what did I just sign up for? But then she was game. She was super game and it was wonderful. But so while I was simultaneously, in a sense, orchestrating Wendy and the art, then I was also recipe testing the, I'd say you have about two or 3,000 recipe variations based on those 100 masters. And that testing didn't just start when the book was being created. That was four years prior to publish because I had been working those recipes again, for decades, but it was writing them and then really tweaking them. So the book came into being because I felt like it didn't exist yet and I would have wished for it. And then Wendy came along and said, yes. And then I was like, oh my God, what did I just get into? But super thrilled, never regretful in any way. And in fact, I could, it was a really 
beautiful journey for me as much as it was, oh my God, just so much effort and overwhelming. It was also amazing. And to manifest something that I had as a vision into real tangible object was pretty amazing. First of all, in reaction to how beautiful the book is and the description of what went into it, it makes sense because it is truly an encyclopedia, I think. Yes. When I look at it, it feels like you're looking at a textbook and yet it's beautiful and accessible and not overwhelming. So that's amazing. I just want to say that it's such a contribution to this universe of foraging and understanding plant medicine and plant food. And Emma used the word encyclopedia. Yes, it's encyclopedic. It's also for me personally, it's like a Bible. Oh, I, I need to go and look and see if this is in feasting and foraging and what, what, what she says about it. And it's my literally my first go-to when I start thinking about what I want to do with this plant. And like I said earlier, I'll say it again, with all the recipes and all the variations, I feel like I've barely scratched the surface and I've had the book for eight years and I've worn it out and pages are bent and dog-eared and I just love it. It's just, it's marvelous. And not only have you created this incredible book, but you're demonstrating a weight that's really bucking the system. Having been doing this for a really long time, which I think is another beautiful thing about you and the work that you're putting out and this conversation about social media. And there's so many, and it's great not to put any of that down, but there's a lot of people that get on and they'll find a YouTube channel and they'll watch some YouTube videos and then they're an expert. So then they make it. So there's that happening and people that can leverage the social media and make themselves an expert instantly. And then there's true gems like yourself who really have been doing it for a long time and are true experts. So in your experience as someone in the field, what changes have you seen in this space or an evolution in the space of in the food world and healing through food world? So let's see if my entry point is around mid-1970s. It was hip still, fringe culture, hippie happening, but was still there a bit. It has now, 2022, become like peak hipster. Not hippie, but hipster. So it's like now seriously hot and also maybe disingenuous, but maybe not. But who cares? It's like, cool, as long as it's in the conversation that plant love and foraging and healing with herbs, all of that is peaking. It's been peaking. I'd say we rode that wave with our book, Foraging and Feasting, when it came out. Yeah. We began to feel that wave. The book was coming regardless, but we actually were on a wave and it's continuing to peak. So I think it's exciting. I think it's awesome. Herbalism now is more in healing with herbs is in the conversation more. There's a lot of like details that can be frustrating or like oversimplifying things and people not really understanding what's going on or using herbs. Perhaps, perhaps they're using them incorrectly. I guess the thing that I like the least is trying to make money and not honoring, not being respectful of the plan or the ecosystem or the human being that's using the herb. Like holistic healing is very different from allopathic healing. Like you're using herbs in a holistic manner, affecting the body, 
trying to have the body heal itself. The healing is actually happening within the human being. The herbs can facilitate that, but it's a really different mindset. So the bigger holistic mindset might not be there yet, but people are, yeah, are still using herbs and talking about forging. And I don't know, I think it's awesome. Yes, that's my overall. Cool. It's great. If people think foraging is hip and then they start thinking about, ooh, what can I forage? And there they are looking in their yards or their region, wherever they are in their neighborhood, and all of a sudden they start to see gems pop out just from maybe a superficial foraging concept. But then that's an entry point for some deeper and more transformational things to occur. And me, the deeper wishes as that's happening, even though they were brought in from the sexy fashion aspect, perhaps Mm -hmm. they get more into it and realize the importance of taking care of that land that they're picking the berry from or whatever it is. Yeah. And so for me, it's just like all these openings. The book Foraging and Feasting was a, is a little bit of a sleight of hand, not really, but it's like to make beauty out of what you might herbicide. So to yes, show yes. the beauty of these plants, for you to fall in love with them. So all of a sudden, the conversation has changed. And it's not an enemy and it's not a black and white situation. And so that book, Forging and Feasting, I wanted it to come into people's lives, even on the, just on the coffee table beauty aspect, whatever it was just to charm. So you're, you're using the sexiness of the plants in a way to bring people in to, to love them and then to, in, in return, love the world and then love themselves more. So it's like that bigger circle. And so because of the, yeah, so in a way I was, I'm doing that with forging and feasting too, making it so that it not, I mean, it has full on integrity. And in my opinion, I appreciate your comments totally about wanting it to be useful forever as a traditional, like encyclopedic, even though it's only 50 plants, but of those plants. So the kitchen arts as well. So the depth is there, but it also is tapping that other wave of fashion and and hip foraging that moment that we're in. Anyway, I think you know what I mean. (laughs) Yeah, I totally do. It's genius. And it's it's genius in that I think was mostly unintentional, which I think is the perfect kind of genius. Like the fact that like, when did Anthro pick it up? And what was that like? Because that must have been interesting too. Yeah, that was super interesting. So the book came out and there's a local seed company. It used to be called the Seed Library, Hudson Valley Seed Library, who are friends of mine who founded it. They were right around the corner from us. And they had some sort of a small fair or something. And they had our book out. And Anthropology came by their fair and I think fell in love with the book. Or maybe I think the seed, it was a very intimate thing. And they were just like wanting the book. And then that was it. And then they ordered the good amount and we shipped it off. It was the biggest palette we'd shipped to one customer at one time. <laughs> and it was funny. But yeah, that's an example, right? It's like anthropology would pick it up. It would mean that it it hit that hipster way. Oh, yeah. But to your point, whatever the entry point is that takes to get a person there, it truly is transformative for someone to begin that journey to buy a plant that's right out their back door that they could, wow, they could maybe eat this in a salad, have it for lunch. And then it starts from there. And it's just, yeah. So I would like to hear you speak about what sustainability and regeneration mean in your work. And however that strikes you to talk about it, it's great. 
Sure. I think it's a big thing. It's it's part of what we've been talking about, right? Just yes. now. So as a forager, like the work to, again, have someone fall in love with their dandelion means that they're going to be stewarding the landscape then because that's feeding them. And that becomes a regenerative practice so that there's that very clear connection. So Another thing, and I speak about it in the book, and when I teach that the action of a forager, through the harvesting, we create more abundance, we create more plant diversity, but it's through knowledgeable foraging. So you know what you're doing. So for example, when you go and you harvest nettle and you pluck it two nodes down, you know that you'll return if there's good rain and get another forage and then another forage. So the idea is that you're action as a forager is creating more than if you hadn't harvested at all. And then that back to that invasive question is when you're foraging for garlic mustard and you want to control it, you need to dig its roots out or you need to not let it go to seed. So you're foraging for that plant at a specific time. So you're controlling it through your actions again. So we can make more biodiversity and more abundance based on how we forge in the landscape. Yeah, I think, what else to say about it? Regenerative, everything I wish for is that there's more, more isn't the right word necessarily, but a healthy and diverse ecosystem that's being fueled by the actions that foraging and feasting is putting out to the world or that the work, how I teach people, that's the idea. But it's as simple as how do you create little compost piles? How do you do sheet mulching? How do you do permaculture? So it's really just taking on the creative component of human reality. It's like, how do, how does our waste stream as a human become a resource for the next, for the next phase of its life? That's always just a really rich thing. It's all about you finding your niche within the ecosystem that you live and learning how to live with it in a way that it thrives as you thrive. A light bulb turned on for me as you were talking there is regenerative. It's not consuming. You're not going out there and consuming the landscape. If you do it correctly and you do it with knowledge and understanding and relationship, you're actually creating regeneration, like your example with the nettle. I love that. So what does slow living mean to you? slow living, slow living. You're connecting to nature. There, it, You bring on slow living. It's basically nature is slow. It's like watching a plant grow from sprout to flower to seed, right? That's, an, that's a slow process. Being able to watch a garden grow or actually watch children grow into adults, like in this neighborhood where we've lived now for a few decades. That's, to me, but slow living, let's see, slow living is also about being in your senses so that you're in the present moment, so you can be experiencing fully what surrounds you. And a big part of when I teach plant literacy is through the senses. I feel like that encourages slow living. So your ability to smell, to taste, to hear and see and perceive, to be present is a slow exercise. It's It slows, you, we slow down time so we become present in it. So plant literacy for me, if I do it, in, if we do it in the way that I imagine, it's a slow living, it's slow living. Plant literacy, that's awesome. Yes. Slow living is plant literacy. I love that answer. Slow yes. living is also watching soil develop, right? It's also yeah. like watching a compost pile and turn like all of this, these diverse 
streams of bits and pieces of yuck in a way. Oh, <laughs> becoming absolutely. Gorgeousness and soil. And there you are with a slow process. It took, right, but this transformation. So slow living, I think, is just honoring processes, honoring being part of and watching processes happen that are with our nature connected, our nature, it is nature. So I guess the slow living gets knocked out when the iPhone comes in or the social media platform, because everything gets fed up and disconnected and you don't see any of the process, you're seeing these endpoints. So a big part of my lifestyle and wish is to be in that slow living, not calling it slow living, but just being tuned into the process of life, which is nature movement, which I think of as slow movement. Or timely movement, just timely. It's not slow or fast. Yeah. Yeah. What you said just ties right into the next question. What does the good dirt mean to you? The good dirt is the shit, right? That's everything. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's my favorite answer. We've never done that. Everything is based on good dirt. If we don't have, for me, good dirt. So that as much as I am excited by, and I am totally into the plant kingdom, where they're emerging out of, that's the serious situation. So it's where that the health of the soil is the health of the plants, is the health of the animals. It's all right there. So for me, I'm very much a soil worshiper and get very distressed when I see poor soil or broken soil. And yet, even in the broken soil, the seed bank has seeds in there and all of those lovely friends will show up. So it isn't what I'm projecting onto it. But so for me, the good dirt is, yeah, it's the good life. It's whatever, it's the basis of wellness. Is there something that you most want people to understand about what you do that you feel like you haven't said yet? It's so simple. It's really like the work is about, about care. (laughs) It's about care for the earth, care for others. It's like very simple. It's almost like that my work is about encouraging a sense of love and connection and peacefulness that then feeds into all it's like a utopian thing (laughs) It's, it's super it's so simple and so utopian right it's just so anyway if we get people to fall in love with the plants and plants being an entry point to nature connection and they begin to feel more peaceful and feel more connected and then that in turn creates a more peaceful and healthy and connected world that's really the goal that's a big wish. <laughs> yeah. But it's right there. It's what it's all about. It's not that difficult. Oh, it is. And it can begin with just making friends with the dandelion. It can all start there. <laughs> um, exactly, Mary. I'm with you. That's right. <laughs> yes. So where can people connect with you and find you and engage with your wonderful and work? Specifically, find your book. Yes. You told us earlier, but Thank not you. on Amazon. You can look on Amazon and you'll be the price is very high for used copies there, but you can just okay. go directly to our website, which is botanicalartspress.com or the book Foraging and Feasting. It's the same name.com. It directs you back. So botanicalartspress.com is our website. You can buy the book there. That would be sweet. You can also check out the Dina Falcone YouTube channel. <laughs> so that's oh, where... Yeah. There's the 100 plus free video lessons for you there. And then what else? There's the Instagram, Foraging and Feasting Instagram, which is pretty active. And there's inthewild.kitchen, which would lead you right now to Lemon Balm Love, which is a free course that would also sign you up for the Foraging newsletter. That's the week 
weekly newsletter that I'll send out. And I think that about covers it. Yeah. Cool. I can tell my listeners, our listeners, that it's wonderful content. And I've been following you for a good while now and just have benefited so much from your work. And it's, I'm just so full of gratitude and appreciation and awe for being able to talk to you today, really. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I just love it so much. Thank you for taking (laughs) your time. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Mary and Emma. I really appreciate this conversation. Fun to be with you, too. Thank you for tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in the link in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer with original music composed and performed by John Kingsley. Our technical partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. Post-production by Alex Brower and Jose Miguel Baez. Coordinated by Gabriela Montequim. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt.